John 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that this God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to the disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Druze had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforted her, they noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on behalf of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. You are the king of kings and you have given us freedom. Thank you so much for coming down for us. Thank you for saving us from sin and death. Thank you for raising again. Thank you for preserving your word and preserving your church. God, please um, remove the obstacles in our hearts and our minds that might keep us from hearing what it is you want us to hear. Please bless Pastor Nathan, bless his words, and please remind our hearts how good you are. Set our hearts and our minds on eternity and not just the here and now. And praise you, Lord. We praise you for being so good and so compassionate. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Sarah. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I want to dig into that. I want us to really understand Jesus' statement that he is the resurrection. I love finding solutions to an interesting problem. I don't know if some of you are the same way, but I love finding solutions to problems. That's why I studied math, is it was just finding lots of solutions to problems. It gets me in trouble a lot of times talking with my wife because I like to solve problems. Sometimes that's not the best thing to do. I love solving problems, but there are problems that can't be solved. There are problems to which there is no solution that we can come up with. The God of the universe, though, is a God who can solve any and every problem. In John 11, there is a big problem presented. We're going to focus in on verses 17 through 26. But before we do that, let me just recap the story because it's a long section of verses. The story starts off telling us about a friend of Jesus, Lazarus. This man, Lazarus, had a problem. He was sick. But Lazarus's family, particularly his sisters, Mary and Martha, knew of a solution to Lazarus's sickness. They knew that their friend, Jesus, had power. And they asked Jesus to come to solve their problem, to solve Lazarus's sickness. Jesus waits. He waits a while. In fact, he waits long enough that Lazarus dies. By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four days. The problem in the mind of everybody is no longer a solvable problem. It's past what anybody could possibly solve. It has become a big problem. And that's where we pick up in verses 17 and on. So I want to start, though, with reminding you that we all have a problem. Every single one of us has a big, looming problem. One day we expect to die. That is reality. Whether you are one month old or whether you are 94 years old, 
you have a problem. One day, you will face death. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, God warned Adam. God told Adam, after creating Adam, God told Adam, you may eat of any tree in the garden, but of this tree here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not partake. You may not eat. For because in the day when you eat of it, you will bring about death. Your disobedience will bring death. Well, you may know the story Adam eats of the tree. The result is Adam is now faced with death. And all of Adam's seeds from then on are tainted with sin, a sin nature that we cannot escape on our own. We are bound to sin, slaves to sin. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. It has been from the time Adam sinned up through today, the penalty for sin is death. Every single one of us has a problem. We face death. Death entered the world because of sin. And such, each of us are sinners. We each face death. So now I want to dig into verse 17. And I want to show you some points that come out of the text. First of all, in verse 17, what I note is that denial, which is a typical response to death, does not change the reality of death. Now, I don't see in the text where uh, Mary or Martha are denying that Lazarus is death. What I see is a point of emphasis. Lazarus has been dead for four days. There is no denying that Lazarus is dead. If you have ever faced death, a death of a close loved one, you have probably gone through a stage of denial. When my dad died that night, I prayed and prayed and prayed that somehow miraculously God would bring my dad back. There was no way, but I denied it at first. You have probably done the same, or more, you have denied the future of your own death. We do this. We think we are invincible. We think that we are going to live forever, and we're not. That's the reality of life. Whether you are one month old or 94 years old, you have a future of death coming. Unless the rapture occurs, and people have been waiting for the rapture for 2,000 years, the odds aren't in our favor that it's going to occur before we die. It might, but the odds aren't in our favor. We face death. Lazarus had been dead for four days. The Jews had a theory at that time. The theory was that if someone had been dead between zero and three days, it was possible they'd come back to life. Actually, what this really is, is the we don't have a good way of checking heart rates theory. (laughs) Okay, but they had this thought that, you know, if he's only been dead for three years, maybe he's not actually dead. No, he'd been dead for four, four days. He was dead. Lazarus is in the tomb. He's gone. He's dead. There's no denying it. In verses 18 and 19, we see the natural response to death. Sorrow. Sorrow is a natural response to death, but sorrow is not just because of death. Sorrow is because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We live in a world that is broken. If you turn on the news, you will see brokenness. If you pick up the newspaper, you'll see brokenness. If you pull up the news on your phone you will see brokenness. 
We live in a broken world, and I want to tell you right now, that is not how it was supposed to be. God did not design this world to be broken. Sin broke the world. Sin is responsible for all of the hardship that we face. In verses 18 and 19, I see Mary and Martha mourning. Mourning. Jewish mourning was carefully prescribed. On the day somebody died, you placed them in the tomb. That night, you did not let the sun go down after their death before they were in the tomb. And then you proceeded for six days to have a time of mourning. The close relatives would stay in the house and people from the surrounding area would come and visit. We're told they were in Bethany and it was close to Jerusalem. That's significant because that means anybody from Jerusalem could make it for this time of mourning. For six days, they are going to spend their time mourning. You see, grieving over death, it's sort of universal. It's natural. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We were not created to die. We were created to live. Sin brought death. So sorrow is a natural response. And we see Mary and Martha in sorrow. At this point, though, there's one additional emotion that I want to bring up. In verses 20 through 22, I see regret. You see, regret, regret over what could have been often accompanies the realization of death. And look at specifically what Martha said in verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's a little bit of faith mixed in there. If you'd only been here, Jesus, I know that you have the power. He wouldn't have died. But there's not just faith. There's actually rebuke. There is rebuke and regret mixed into that. And it reads fairly strongly in the Greek, this idea. It's not just a statement of faith, but it's a statement of regret. If you had just been here, Jesus, I am so sorry that you weren't here. I regret that you weren't here because Lazarus would be alive. You see, when we look at sin, when we look at the reality of death, the first thing we do is we deny it. You have probably at some point in your life thought or acted like you were invincible, like you would not die. Like you could go about and do whatever you wanted and nothing would harm you. You've probably lived that way at some point in your life. You might be living that way right now. The reality is that death is a real thing that we each face. It's a problem that we all have that none of us can solve. You can do everything in your power to live forever and you won't. Death is a reality. And with that death comes sorrow. And with that sorrow comes regret. So, let me give you an action step. Something that you can do right now. Ask yourself, have I properly acknowledged the reality of death? Have you ever thought about it seriously? Thought about the fact that one day you will cease to be on this earth. It's the reality that we all face. If you have not 
properly acknowledge the reality of death. Today's the day. Today, we talk about resurrection. We celebrate the rising of Jesus from the dead. But if we haven't acknowledged the reality of death, there's no way we can appreciate what resurrection actually is. Let's move on in our passage. Because in verses 23 through 24, I see something really striking. I see the reality that optimism and general hope hardly solve our looming problem. Mere optimism or general hope that things are going to work out hardly solve the looming problem. Have you ever interacted with somebody? Maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one. Somebody that does not believe in God or somebody that does not believe in a future eternity. Have you ever interacted with them and they tell you something like, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. I will tell you, that's garbage. That is a load of garbage. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in eternal life, in a future hope, if this is all there is, it's not going to be okay. It's not. No. A general optimism. Oh, things will work out in the end. They don't. I, I'm going to tell you that right now. If your hope is that in the end things are going to work out, you need to go back to point one. Because your future is death. No, the reality is we need more than general optimism. And this is what happens here in verses 23 through 24. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up on the scene. And Martha makes this statement. If you had been here, if you had just been here, Jesus. And Jesus provides a response in verse 23. He says, your brother will rise again. Okay, this is just a little more than general hope that Jesus gives. Jesus says, don't worry, we know there's eternity. Okay? Martha's response is telling. Jesus says, there's more to life than this present age. And Martha says, that's not enough for me. You just telling me it's all going to be all right in the end? That's not enough. If you are here and you feel like the statement, it'll be okay in the end, is not enough, you're in the same boat as Martha, and it's good. That's a good position to be in because I want to tell you there is more than just general hope available. We have more than just a general hope. We have a specific hope, and we're going to get to that specific hope. We want more assurance than a mere general hope in the future. I want more assurance than that. I want to know more than just, oh, it'll be okay. No. There is more that Christ has to offer than just a general hope. Martha shows a general dissatisfaction in the, te in the text. And I find it interesting. Jesus doesn't rebuke Martha. Jesus doesn't tell Martha, oh, you of little faith. No, he doesn't say anything like that. What happens is Jesus gives more detail. So my action step for you is to evaluate your future hope. Take a minute and evaluate your future hope. 
Do you have something specific to which you can look forward? Are you just hoping that in the end, it'll be okay? Or are you hoping for something specific? Because there is something specific in which you can hope. There is something that you can possess and say, this is what I hope in. This is what I look forward to. This is what my eternity is going to be. See, verse 25 through 26 tell us that the real solution is specific knowledge in the one who has defeated death. That's the real solution. The real solution to our problem, remember our problem, we are all going to face death. The real solution is specific knowledge in one who has already defeated death. I love Jesus' response to Martha. Remember what Martha has said. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Okay, our Bibles don't actually tell us how much sarcasm's in these words. <laughs> but I read a little bit into there. I know, I know, it's going to all work out in the end. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is not something where you can just, I know, I know, it'll be okay. No. Specifically, you can know Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In the book of John, John uses the Greek phrase, ego eimi, which means I am. He uses it very carefully whenever Jesus says something very strong about himself. Uh, it comes up seven times in the book of John. This is the fifth time it has come up. And here Jesus says, I am the resurrection. He equates himself with resurrection. He equates himself with life. He is resurrection. He is life. He connects two things together. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Life is something that we have right now, we think of, right? You are all living and breathing. If not, raise your hand. <laughs> we are all alive. We think of that as the present. Jesus says, I am, though, the resurrection, which is a future thing, and the life, which is a present thing. Jesus says, all your future hopes, they're wrapped up in me. Everything you have now, that's wrapped up in me. Jesus says, I am everything that you are looking for, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. What was a future hope is a present reality, and what is a present reality is a future hope. What is a future hope is a present reality, and what is a present reality is a future hope. Have you ever thought about what heaven's going to be like? I'm going to tell you all as a kid, I thought heaven was going to be like sitting on a cloud playing a harp, and I, I will be honest, I thought that's going to be really boring after a while. <laughs> Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Your future hope is for life in the future. The life we live now matters in the future. It's not that we're going to be sitting around playing on harps, unless that's really what you want to do. I think what Jesus is saying is that the life you live now, but better. Your resurrection will involve life. Life in its fullest. Life without the taint of sin. 
Jesus continues on. He answers this question. So how do we get there? Okay, Jesus, you've told me that you are the resurrection and the life, but Lazarus is dead. These statements, you are the resurrection and the life, doesn't change the fact that Lazarus is dead. Jesus continues, though, in his statement. He doesn't just leave it as I am the resurrection and life. He says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. Yes, Lazarus is physically dead, but he is living, is what Jesus says. He is living. Even though he is physically dead, he is alive. That can only mean he's alive in an eternal way with God in heaven. Now, Jesus is going to go one step further here in the moment. We already read through the text, so we know what actually happens. Jesus doesn't just make this claim. Jesus then proceeds to raise Lazarus from the dead to verify that he knows exactly what he's talking about. Jesus gives specific, measurable ways that we can look to believe in Jesus. And to that question, we have to look at the entire book of John. Because John wrote his book all together as one piece, what it means to believe in Jesus from the book of John. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. That's the first thing that John wants us to know, is that Jesus is God. The second thing that John wants us to know comes in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. John wants us to know that Jesus was sent by God to redeem the world. In John 19, John proves to us, argues for us, that Jesus lived the perfect sinless life. To believe in Jesus means to believe that Jesus is God, that he was sent by God, that he lived the perfect sinless life, that he died on the cross as described in the book of John in order to save mankind from sin as described in John 12. And finally, in John 20, we are told that Jesus rose from the dead. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to believe that Jesus is God. That Jesus was sent by God to redeem the world. He lived a perfect, sinless life, yet he died on the cross as payment for our sins and rose again three days later that all who believe in him might have salvation. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And look at the promise. It is not a mere hope that we have Jesus says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. You will have life. Life. You know what life is. You've had a shadow of life already on this earth. But remember, this earth is filled with sin. It is not what it was meant to be. The life that God promises is better, fuller, richer, That's what Jesus promises. The one who believes in me will have life. Even though you might die, you will have life in a way that we can't even comprehend. Finally, in John 21, Jesus reminds us that he is coming again. 
to believe in Jesus is to believe that one day Jesus is coming again. In verse 26, Jesus highlights that the results of believing in Jesus are the solution to our ultimate problem, death. Our ultimate problem is death. It's unsolvable by any of us. But Jesus solves it. Jesus says, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now, you might say, wait a second, you just told me I'm going to die. Yes. So what in the world can Jesus possibly mean? Well, I'm going to give you a hint. First of all, Jesus knew what he had just said better than I know what he had just said. In verse 25, Jesus said that even though you might physically die, you will have life. So we need to understand that he can't possibly mean physical death in verse 26. What he means is spiritual death. Whoever lives by believing in Jesus will never experience spiritual death. They will have eternal life. You may physically die, but you will immediately be in heaven, living life as it was meant to be lived. Mary and Martha had a problem. They thought, if only Jesus had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. You see, really what their problem was is they viewed Jesus as a divine steward. Mary and Martha thought, Jesus has access to the power of God, and if he's here, he'll be able to heal Lazarus. He is a steward of God's power. And what Jesus says here is, no. Jesus is no mere steward of God's power. Jesus is God. Jesus, as God, is not the divine steward. He is God himself, the one with power himself over life and death. Jesus concludes with a simple question. I like to imagine Jesus looking straight at Martha and asking, do you believe this? So that's my question for you. Do you believe this? That Jesus, God himself, is the one with power to solve our problem of death. Do you believe this? Let me give you an action step. Place your complete hope and confidence in Jesus today. I don't know where your hope is. If your hope is in modern medicine, it has a 100% failure rate. Everybody that modern medicine treats dies. Okay? If your hope is in your own strength, you know where you're ultimately going to wind up. Jesus actually raises Lazarus from the dead. It wasn't just words that Jesus spoke. It was not mere words. It was action that Jesus took to verify his word. Lazarus back from the dead. But then what he did is even more than that. Shortly thereafter, he himself was crucified on the cross. The perfect, sinless God himself 
hung on the cross, and physically killed. But three days later, he rose, proving his words that he was not just the divine steward of God's power. He was God himself with power over life and death himself. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 states, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection means that we are no longer slaves to death. Every one of us has death in our future, but it has no power over you if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior. So my challenge, if you have not placed your complete hope or confidence in Jesus, to do so today. If you have placed your hope and confidence in Jesus, but you maybe have not been living as if there's a future, I want you to turn to Jesus today. Placing our complete hope and confidence in Jesus means not only laying our hopes before Jesus, but our life before Jesus, trusting that his model of life is the model we should adopt. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus, your son, God himself, to die. But the story didn't end with Jesus on the cross. The story didn't end with Jesus in the tomb. Jesus rose, and his resurrection is proof of his words, that he is the resurrection and life. And the one who dies lives if they put their full and total confidence in Jesus. The one believing in him shall have life, though they die. Father, I pray that we would believe, trust you, and put our full and complete dependence upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.